I mean, there's a point to this picture. <laughs> uh, eat your heart out, it's what it's called. It's actually a picture of Lake Maggiore, the north of Italy, um, from Stresa, from the hill, where there's a certain library which I have been forced, um, obliged to use for the last two summers to look at some manuscripts, and I'll be back there again. So as I say, it's called Eat Your Heart Out, but I'll come back to that later on today. Um, as Steve said, I'm dealing with two different things. One is Italy, and the other is what you might call the high end of science, the more um, what he called the intellectual side of, uh, of mechanics. He's dealing with the, the nitty gritty, the workman's side, as it were, the practical side. I'll be dealing more with the theoretical side, but I'm not going to go into any technicalities except one or two very quick things, because I know that an unscientist's eyes simply glaze over when you put an equation or refer to something like that. Um, on the board. Um, the big problem, the, there's three sections to this. I'll talk firstly about the, the big historical problem of the scientific renaissance and its connection to the scientific revolution of the 17th century, Newton, Descartes, and all the rest of them, Hooke, Huygens, and so on, as well as, of course, Galileo. Um, and that's the first section. Then I'll go on to talk about some precise um, phenomena of how um, the 16th century sciences change, especially the science of mechanics, what we now call physics, and how that leads to the mathematization of physics. But that's the second section. Then the third section will be on this um, gentleman whose manuscripts I have the pleasure, obligation to look at, um, at you know, great self-sacrifice in Stresa each year. That's Bernardino Baldi is his name. Um, the first section is quite short. Um, I feel as I'm dangling man or something. Um, just one second. Oh, I'll help with it. Um, the, the, the old line, which was current 30, 40 years ago when I started in this business, was that the scientific revolution begins really with Galileo in the early 17th century and then as Steve said, inevitably progresses into Newton and all the rest of it by the second part of the century. I still, despite what Steve says, am a believer in progress, the inevitable progress of this. Uh, as a historian, I tend to believe in contingency, that nothing is inevitable. But I think there's such a critical mass reached by about 1600, 1620, that it really cannot be stopped. Um, and I do believe in the nature of progress and scientific truth contrary to the existing fashions among history of science people, which say there isn't this uh, truth, it's all relativized, it's all constructed truth and all the rest. Well, as they say, you show me a constructionist of science flying in an airliner at 30,000 feet who doesn't believe in the laws of Newton <laughs> and so on. Um, well, uh, this is um, leading into, into the whole question of what happened 30 years ago to the scientific renaissance and how did it relate to the scientific revolution which began only in the 1700s, 1600s. Um, the scientific renaissance was sort of a vague miscellaneous phenomenon that seemed to be a rather primitive prehistory of the scientific revolution. That's basically, I would say, Marie Boas's very good textbook on the scientific renaissance depicted it. You had very good areas of pro what we call progress, inverted commas, and you'd have areas of superstition, uh, complete primitivism of thought, wild guesswork, and mysticism almost. Um, well, 
What I'm looking at today is the areas of progress in the scientific renaissance, which leads in to the scientific revolution. When I was going through all the literature in the last week to catch up quickly on it, I was absolutely amazed to find that things have suddenly changed among very professional historians of science. Um, Mario Bjorjoli is, of course, still pushing the old contextual line, if I may call it that, which looks at everything but the real science, in my opinion. Um, but the most, the most skillful historians of science, say Palmieri, um, Miele, people at Pittsburgh and at Indiana, whose articles came to my notice just a few days ago, have discovered the most breathtaking things now. What they're showing is that you cannot separate the scientific renaissance of the 16th century in mechanics from the scientific revolution. It's impossible. It's not a prehistory. It's folded up right into it. And you can't understand the scientific revolution without the precursors of it all a bad word, in the 16th century. So that's been a major change, I think, in the professional literature. I was very pleased to see this because this is what I pushed 35 years ago when no one would believe it. Um, how do you, you, you do with this thing? Um, that's the um, rather nondescript sort of uh, frontispiece of my book, um, which did, tried to show two things. One was that there was tremendous embedding of the scientific Renaissance in terms of mathematics and physics, not physics, mathematics, mechanics, in humanistic culture. That's Greek and Latin culture, the idea of the rebirth of antiquity in the 15th and 16th century in Italy. Most of the humanists were very interested in mathematics. The mathematicians, in turn, took a lot of their knowledge from the revived Greek and Latin texts, which were being published for the first time via the printing press in the 16th century, essentially. Um, this book, I, I was very amused when it was first reviewed in the TLS. One critic said, invaluable, if only as bibliography, which was something we put down. But it's turned out to be true. Actually, I was reading it this morning for the first time in about 20 years, and I thought, this is good stuff. You know, the sort of impression you get when you read a student's paper and you think, this is good stuff. And then you realized they're just peddling your own garbage back to you, essentially. It's, it's always nice to be flattered by imitation. Um, shall we say about this? Um, it's, I'm, I'm going to leave this, this big problem of historiography, uh, except just to say one thing, and that is that now we understand that Galileo has to be seen in the context, which was the book's point, of the 16th century predecessors, patrons, friends of his, the whole circle of people with whom he corresponded on very technical matters, frequently as well as on less technical matters, uh, religion um, and, and so on. You cannot understand Galileo now, we understand the situation without his predecessors. Now, the first person who really understood this, I think, was Stillman Drake, who died a few years ago, who was the preeminent scholar, probably along with Favaro, the great Italian 19th century editor of Galileo's works of Galileo. Um, Stillman had a, a tremendous intuitive understanding of the voluminous manuscripts, the notebooks, the scribblings of Galileo, and was able to reconstruct a tremendous number of the mental processes, which are very complex indeed, by which Galileo conceptualized some of his most profound ideas, such as the law of free fall, relating um, the speed, the acceleration of a body to time and so forth, the time of the drop. Also, the, the parabolic trajectories, which were later to come in um, to a very useful uh, purpose, not just with cannonball ballistic tables, as Stephen was mentioned, but with Kepler's orbits, um, 
but I'll come to, I don't want to go into that. Uh, Galileo's relationship with Kepler was very strange. Kepler told him of his discovery of the elliptical orbits. They're all conic sections, parabolas, ellipses, uh, hyperbolas. Kepler told Galileo of this discovery, of, which is absolutely vital, for, again, for the scientific revolution. But Galileo disregarded it totally. He thought Kepler was a mystic, basically. He didn't believe it, and he was convinced that uh, the orbits of the planets were circles, almost one of the few relics of his Aristotelian uh, training in his youth. So um, let's go on to the second section, which is the more complicated one. Um, until Galileo's revolution, one has to understand that physics, that is the philosophy of nature, and mathematics, the mathematical sciences, are quite separate from one another. This, you have to think yourself back to the 16th century and so forth to, to appreciate this. Now we automatically assume that the science of nature, physics, is, mathemati is mathematics, basically. Uh, the two things are inseparable, thanks to uh, the people I'm talking about today. Physics dealt with basically causes, I think, and qualities, and it was taught in the philosophy faculties at much higher salaries than mathematics, which was taught in the arts faculty, and sometimes in a sub-faculty of mathematics. Um, astronomy was taught by the professor of mathematics at most Italian universities. Um, it verged sometimes onto what we nowadays call judicial astrology in a few cases, um, but that was eventually combated by about 1600 and uh, force underground, the stuff you read in the papers each day about Pisces and Virgo and all the rest of it. That's judicial astrology, whereas mathematical astrology was the mathematical study of the relationships of the, of the data as observed of the planet, the motions of the planets. Um, the interesting thing here about the mathematicians is that they also taught what we call mixed sciences, not just astronomy, but sometimes mechanics and sometimes music as part of the syllabus. So these, what you call intermediate science in the Aristotelian framework of knowledge, turn out to be the sciences where a lot of the action is for the scientific revolution, especially astronomy and mechanics. These are the two pillars of the Newtonian, the final climax of the scientific revolution by the 1670s, 1680s, um, where finally terrestrial mechanics and celestial mechanics are linked up together. So. Um, we're not going to be looking at physics as it's understood in the 16th century. That's the philosophy of nature. If we want to find the roots of the scientific revolution, we're looking at the uh, mathematics professors underpaid then. But I think the situation has improved by now, one hopes. At least the ones who have migrated to business studies and economics and so on. Um, if you look, I mean, in 1543, as Stephen showed you, you have Copernicus. That's the big, the basic starting point of the astronomical sector of the scientific revolution. The mechanical one comes later. Uh, and before I go into that, I have to say what mechanics is very quickly, which might completely puzzle you if you're a scientist or a non-scientist for different reasons. Um, in the scientific revolution, once, you, once it's achieved, mechanics includes two departments, among others, which we nowadays call statics and dynamics. Um, statics is the, um, the use of equilibrium, the study of equilibrium, forces in equilibrium, and so forth. It's not the study of movement. Movement belongs to the science of dynamics by the 17th century, the science of motion, projectiles, um, and all this sort of thing. 
Now, in the 16th century, the dynamics, the science of movement, is pure Aristotelian philosophy. Um, it's all dealt with in Aristotle's physics, the physics of what were called local motions and so forth, the motion of place, transfer of situation of sight, of, uh, is, is um, dynamics. Um, it deals also with qualities. In the Middle Ages, there's a huge scholarly literature on this now, on medieval um, physics in the Aristotelian sense, um, and attempts to use mathematics in a very limited way uh, to understand it. For instance, they would tend to explain the philosopher's motion, the motion of a cannonball, by saying that um, it's basically an impressed force, a violent force in Aristotelian terms, that is impressed somehow or other on the cannonball by the gunpowder, for example. But how does that impress the force? That doesn't solve the problem. It, somehow the force is transferred to the cannonball, and then it fades. So it slows down with distance and eventually stops or smashes into a wall at a lower speed, lower velocity. So that's the Aristotelian theory, which has got lots of medieval antecedents. The theory of impetus, for example. When you come to the problem of percussion in mechanics, that becomes a very interesting area in the 1580s, 1590s, and in Galileo himself, who's very much perplexed by it and devotes years to studying it and publishes part of his findings in the great work, The Two New Sciences of 1638. Um, because the problem is with percussion, you've got, the, when I hit this with a hammer, you've got not just the force, say a hammer resting on the screen, but the added problem of the movement which augments the force in Newtonian terms, obviously. You can understand it very easily if you know Newton, but that wasn't understood then. They're still working within this uh, mindset of Aristotelian physics and forces and, and so on. Um, there's another area of movement, which I just mentioned in passing, which is very much dealt with in the literature on Galileo. They, a lot of people try to ascribe Galileo's breakthroughs to the influence of medieval kinematics, a Kinematics didn't exist as a term until the 19th century. Kinematics is the science of motion, but without using causes, philosophical causes. And it uses certain, um, what I suppose you could call them, kinds of causes. Things like intention and remission of forms, intensification of forms, slackening of forms, to, to analyze the movement of objects. Um, it's a dead end, as far as Galileo is concerned. And he does try it for a while. He fools around with it around 1590. Um, and then just gives it up. Uh, but it's a dead end because it can't give you the relationship, the, the crucial free-fall equation of Gal relationship of Galileo, which relates um, the, the speed of the object at any one point to the time elapsed, the square of the time from the moment it begins its free-fall. It always relates um, the velocity to distance, the distance traveled from the letting go point. So, I mean, it's very persuasive, but it doesn't get you anywhere without the time relationship. And that's one of Galileo's great discoveries, which took him many, about 15 years to come up with. Um, so, when we look now in detail um, at this, uh, how, how could people learn about mechanics in the 16th century, in the scientific renaissance? Well, you have the medieval tradition of kinematics I mentioned, which I don't think really worked for the pure mathematicians. Then you have a thing called a medieval science of weights, a man called well, alleged author, Jordanus, 13th, 14th centuries, um, comes up with these weights. And he's obviously 
obviously drawn on much older Greek and Latin treatises which have been lost. Um, some of them we can guess at now because they were, re were rediscovered in the 16th century by the Renaissance mathematicians. But it's, a very, it's, it's int very interesting to look at the size of weights of Jordanus, but it's full of errors and misconceptions on the men mental level which block any real development of the science as a science of mechanics into modern physics. The second possibility was the pseudo-Aristotelian mechanica, mechanical questions. I call it, call it mechanica for short. It's not by Aristotle, but probably by a student of his, Strato. Um, and it's just 35 questions and sort of plausible answers, ranging from the trivial to very profound. Uh, it's very important because it's rediscovered in the early 16th century by humanists who then tried to apply it to the building of ships in Venice and uh, they tried to construct a quinquireme, five banks of ord, ancient ship. And of course, the thing was a disaster. It fell apart under its own weight as Galileo later understood in the 17th century with his theory of dimensions. He understood why it would fall apart. Um, but the mechanic is very influential. Stillman Drake, um, when I was working with him, and I did an article which I'm delighted to see is quoted all the time um, on its tradition and how it's edited, commented, published by various mathematicians, physicists, and um, humanists alike in the 16th century. And it's got a quite remarkable uh, Fortuna distribution, if you're interested in that sort of stuff. Um, the third tradition that was available was the Archimedean one, which I'll talk about now. Uh, before I go on to that, I'll just show you one thing. Well, the Archimedean one is this. Uh, this is the first Greek and Latin text published at Basel in 1544 of the works of Archimedes, more or less complete. It's a very bad edition because the, te the manuscripts are corrupt and it was done by someone who didn't understand the mathematics and just translated them literally or reproduced the, the manuscript readings without real critical power or insight. Um, this is a partial list of what followed. Um, even the year before that came out, you have Tartaglia, Italian mathematician and algebraist of the first order, who's also a practical mathematician, did gunnery tables and all the rest of it. Um, and Tartaglia was quite good at mechanics, but he was more inclined to dynamics, which was not a respectably mathematized science in the 1540s. And so he had problems with it. Um, he tried to gain some insights into movement, um, proto-science of dynamics, with these uh, Latin Text, which are very bad. He pinched them, actually. He plagiarized them from the medieval tradition of um, manuscripts of Archimedes without being able to do much about them. Then you get Comendino, and he's the first of the school of Urbino mathematicians in central Italy. There's a whole series of them. They're all connected straight by almost family lines to Galileo. Um, there's Comandino, and there's his pupil Guido Baldo, and there's uh, Guido Baldo's associate Baldi, and uh, Guido Baldo is also the patron. He writes two letters of recommendations for professorships for Galileo, which he, he got. So, I mean, the connections here are very tight, the social connections. Um, they each have different ideas if you analyze the, fit, the mechanics in detail, but it's good enough, I mean, to show you that they're all working on the same group of problems. Um, 
in the first Commandino text, 1558, he doesn't publish the really interesting mechanical works. They're just uh, mathematical, geometrical. And then he comes up with his own book on the center of gravity, which he writes to try and clarify a lot of the obscure issues in the manuscripts of Archimedes about the key physical mechanical principle of the center of gravity of bodies, especially of solid bodies. And with Archimedes, the concentration of centers of gravity, which is a mechanical physical concept, um, comes in mainly with uh, two-dimensional, with plane equilibria, equilibrium conditions, whereas um, it's generalized by Comandino and others into the, the solids. And once you have solids, you have real things and real physics beginning to develop as uh, commentaries on the mechanical principles of Archimedes. Floating bodies, very famous. It's very interesting, this, and it's only just now being studied in the last 10, 15 years in the literature for its impact on other things connected with gravity and Galileo's law of free fall and so on. The point is, of course, when you drop something that sinks in a medium like water, you can see how it descends much more slowly than you can if you drop um, a cannonball from the Tower of Pisa. It's over too fast. The question of instruments capable of timing these falls of different types and different media uh, it's very important, and I think that's beginning to be studied now in very great detail, just very recently. It's a magnificent book by Domenico Meli, M-E-L-I, which I only found three or four days ago, published last year, called Thinking with Objects. And he gets rid of all the old opposition between the scientist and the craftsman who's responsible for the scientific revolution. He says it's neither. The scientist is, at the same time, the craftsman in the sense he's working constantly with material objects, cannonballs, lots of other things like that, guns and so on, without losing sight of the abstract uh, mechanical principles involved. Pappus's mathematical collections is um, a fourth century um, development of Archimedes, very incomplete and full of errors and so on, but very physically minded in terms of the, his approach to mechanics and statics. Um, then you get the famous work of Guido Baudo, the mechanics of 1577, which is translated for the benefit of the layman or the engineer into Italian four years later. This is, a, again, a work that's only just recently been studied, though I drew quite serious attention to it in my earlier book, a whole chapter on it. So I'm delighted to see it's coming to life again in a way that um, I was not able to interpret it. The people doing it now have got tremendous analytical techniques and abilities and training that we never had 30 or 40 years ago in the history of science. Um, Guido Baldo also paraphrases um, the key work of Archimedes, Plane Equilibrium on Centers of Gravity in Planes, in 1588, again, a tremendous circulation. Uh, Galileo was so inspired by it that he writes a youthful work on the centers of gravity. And in the two new sciences, his great masterpiece of 1638, he appends it in the printed edition, this work of Juvenilia. It's absolutely amazing. So you can see how central it is to his whole scientific development. That's Galileo. Um, one of the key things is, do this quickly now. Let me show you the quickly the difference between the two schools of, of the Aristotelian Mechanica and uh, whatever it is. Where is this? Ah, well, here we are. This. Um, it's not very much in focus, but never mind. The top one is the Mechanica. It's a dynamic approach to statics which doesn't really work. 
It's got some interesting aspects to it. Basically, it reduces everything to concentric circles in terms of analysis. The lever, the balance, what are called the simple machines, are reduced to almost functions of a circle, of the phenomenon of the circle, and circular motion. So you can see if you've got a lever, AB, one side short, one side long, B is regarded as the more powerful end because in the same time that it travels from B to D, say, two feet along the circumference, it travels only one foot on the shorter end from A to C. Therefore, the, the, the difference in that shows you the greater amount of power on one side than, than the other. It's not mathematized. Um, that's left to Guido Baldo and all the other Archimedeans to do following Archimedes. And here the lever is something quite different. It depends on the distances between the fulcrum and the, the weights at either end. And this, these are proportions and so on. So you can easily mathematize these findings and generalize them to lots of areas, machines, all kinds of things. Um, some pretty pictures. That's a picture of uh, Guido Baldo's book of mechanics, 1577. It's a big folio book. But the interesting thing is this. Guido Baldo has a principle why he really prefers Archimedes. He says, in mathematics, the most exact proofs are required. And so it seems to me that Jordanus, the medieval authority of weights, should not even be counted among the mechanicians. We must have recourse to Archimedes. Then we go on to another part of that. You can see the historical, the historical sense of Guido Baldo. I'm not going to read that. But basically, he says that didn't work. It was not a rigorous proof. Therefore, what happened was that Archimedes took it over and mathematized the proof to make it rigorous and certain. So it's a different level. Right. Um, I'll just show you one picture of, there's lots more to do. Let me show you, I'll just explain that one picture of the uh, thing. Uh, where is it here? Here we are. This is the picture of the books. Somewhere like that. That's the four big volumes of Baldi's Lives of the Mathematicians, which he wrote in 1590 to 1610. It's 2,000 pages long. Um, I rediscovered these independently with another scholar in 1972 and let it go for 30 years. And then conveniently, my rival died. So I re revived the project three years ago. And I'm publishing a big selection of these into English for the first time. They've never been translated. Um, you can see with these, which, as I said, are housed in Strasa at the moment. With these, you can see a very strong similarity to other histories of the time. For instance, um, uh, Vasari's Lives of the Painters, for example, which is also a parallel type of history to this, Polydor, Virgil, lots of other things. Um, the, the only point is that the guiding principle of the Baldi Lives of the Mathematicians, he includes Arabic ones because he knew Arabic but he didn't like algebra. The guiding principle is rigorous Archimedean proof. That's what decides progress in the sciences for the first point. And secondly, whether trivially the, the mathematician is to be praised or um, sort of reduced in, in prestige. Sorry about that. Right. What time is it? Right. Thank you.